This is episode number 154, Living and Striving from a Happier Place with Coach David Roche. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and sports science to help you be better every day. When you're dealing with pain, it's not logic that gets you out of it. It's love. It's the only thing that can work. Because we all have those things, maybe if we're able to give that to others a little bit more, we can help. But then again, that won't solve everything. But love can solve a lot of things. I'm stoked you guys are here. Thank you so much for being a part of my community and for listening to this podcast. And I'm particularly excited about today's guest because he is a super special and awesome person. He's somebody that makes everybody around him better. And I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, David Roach. I feel like he is a kindred spirit, especially after reading his awesome book, The Happy Runner, that he co-authored with his wife, who is also an incredible human, Megan Roach. They're an awesome dynamic duo living in Boulder, Colorado with their adorable dog, Addie. And author is just one of the hats that David wears. He started his own coaching company in 2013 called SWAP. SWAP stands for Some Work, All Play, where he and Megan coach some of the top trail runners and obstacle course athletes in the world. Their coaching speaks for itself with over 17 U.S. national championships won, athlete appearances on Team USA 14 times, Spartan World Champions, and more. David is also well accomplished as a runner, as a two-time national champion, a three-time member of Team USA, and was sub-ultra trail runner of the year in 2014. He is also a contributing writer to Trail Runner Magazine and frequently has articles coming out. So if you're interested, make sure that you check them out. And even if you're not a runner, a lot of his articles are actually relevant to everybody. And if that's not enough, he's also a former lawyer. David and Megan's book really resonated with me because it's about being a happy athlete. We talked about important topics like sport as celebration instead of a measuring stick of how good of a person you are. Who can relate with that? I can. We talked about having a healthy relationship with results. We talked about how to have more self-acceptance and even contemplating mortality. I think you'll get a lot out of this podcast and you'll definitely be walking, running, or riding away with your cup and heart full. And before we get started, I just have a few things I want to say. First of all, thank you so much to those of you who have been purchasing my Plant Power Tribe digital cookbook available at moxieandgrit.com. I noticed after the two episodes that we recorded with your plant-based frequently asked questions, there was a big uptick in sales there. And I'm excited for you guys to try out my favorite easy and delicious plant-based recipes to help you be healthier. If you haven't checked out the documentary Game Changers, it is about how plant-based athletes thrive in multiple sports, including MMA fighters, strongman competitions, and endurance sports. Definitely check out Game Changers on Netflix. Also, big thank you to those of you supporting my work financially on Patreon. If you want to kick a couple bucks a month to keep the show going, it is a patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And if you don't want to contribute a few bucks, just let, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with your friends on social media. All those things keep win in our sales and keep the ship moving forward and help us make the world a better place. So thank you so much. 
I was hoping to hit the ground running this week. After a vacation, we went to the Caribbean for a cruise, which was super relaxing and awesome. And before that, we were in New York because Matt had a work conference. But sadly, we both came back super sick. So I've been on the couch the majority of the week, hoping to get back in action soon because there's a lot of awesome things that I'm excited to do. I've been sick like this in forever. So just trying to remember that it's not permanent whenever you're sick or you're injured and that you will come around and you just have to be patient. One thing that I watched on Netflix yesterday that I really loved was a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood documentary about Fred Rogers. And I used to watch Mr. Rogers all the time when I was a little kid. And I haven't watched or even really thought about Mr. Rogers since I was a little kid. So I highly recommend it. It's really interesting to see how he had his show going. I think it was from 1968 to 2001, how brave he was commentating on political situations that were happening and how brave he was to talk about really difficult issues with little kids on his show. So definitely check that out if you're looking for a fun documentary. All right. So let's get into the show with David Roach. I'm super excited. You guys are going to love him. Here he is. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much. I can't wait to chat with you. Yeah, it was fun right before we hit record to hear about how there's like worlds colliding with people that we know. And I think it's funny that we haven't actually met before because we're passionate about a lot of the same things. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so crazy to think about. Um, I mean, it's one of the best parts about these communities is that there's so many amazing humans in there. And, you know, so many people focus on love and positivity and all these other really fun things. And it's a journey to get to try to find them all. I feel like it's like Pokemon, you know, like I just got my, I just got my Sonia. So uh, I just collected it. So I think that there you go. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to talk about your book. I mean, you as a human are really awesome. Like you've done so many great, great things in your life. Like you're like a lawyer and you've been on um, the team USA multiple times. You've been multiple time national champion. So as an individual, you've achieved quite a bit. And in your book, I love that there's a lot of humor and realism that's shared about both you and your your amazing wife, Megan's journey. Well, yeah, thanks so much. I mean, the book was a whole big thing. Like, So basically what happened is a publisher came to us and asked if we would be interested in writing a book. And we were like, I don't think we have anything to say. Um, but we were also like, well, you know, we preach to our athletes that you got to shoot your shot when you get the opportunities that you're given. So we're just like, sure, maybe we can do that. So the publisher wanted, I think like a normal training book, you know, based on our athletes success and things. And we turned in something very different to them. And fortunately we had a great person that went to bat for us at the publisher and was willing to publish, you know, talking about death and bad jokes and a talking dog and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, our goal was just to, you know, coaching has given us a window into people's lives. And what that window has shown us is that, you know, we're all different, but at, at our core, we're all dealing with the same things, you know, like striving, insecurity, all of which stem from like an uncertainty and in, in existence itself. And that's something beautiful and to be celebrated and that can bring us all together. So hopefully the book would feel kind of like a big, a nice big hug for people that need it. And I can personally attest, like I'm trying to work on my own book and I know how much commitment it takes and I've struggled with that. 
How have you applied like your work ethic and your ability to have stay positive and also to just continue going with things whenever they get hard with writing the book? Well, first, what, do you have deadlines for your book? I have intentionally said I'm going to write the entire thing before I get... I had a publisher actually come to me, which was super flattering. But then I was like, I think I just want to write the whole thing first. (laughs) Yeah, that's so smart. I totally would recommend that to people that are doing it. Because now, I mean, I still barely know anything, but now I know a little bit more about publishing. And I learned, like, it's one of those things where, God, I'm glad I didn't know what I know now. (laughs) But yeah, so for me with that sort of thing, like, you know, it's very similar to what you, what you tell everyone. Like I try as much as I can to experience as like gratitude in what I have and what I go through. I mean, it's not always possible, but like writing being the big one of that. So I, I write these like 2000 word articles each week for Toronto magazine too. And you know, when it, like every writer is like, why, what am I doing? Like all this other stuff. And I'm just like, well, in the face of that, I just kind of want to make some jokes and write down what comes out. And, you know, the people that love me will love me and the critics will be critics no matter what you do. And so that took some of the pressure off. And I think that that gets back to a little bit of like how the writing process compared to the athletic process is, you know, if you're setting goals for yourself, like I want to write this amazing book, I want to have a bestseller or whatever, you're probably going to produce self-conscious crap and you're not going to be happy either way. And, you know, if you don't do that, you might still have some crap sometimes and that's cool too, but you know, it'll be way more joyous. So yeah, that's kind of what we tried to do. And it really helped that I got to co-write with Megan because she's great at helping me not take anything too seriously. Yeah. I love the story of how you guys met, how she's like, that guy's weird, but in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm weird, but, and I say this with the ultimate amount of love, she is a hundred times weirder. (laughs) You know, her weirdness drives her to incredible places and she's just the most warm human that you'll ever meet. She's truly exceptional and weird. So maybe she saw a little bit of a kindred spirit, but I'm definitely pulling up the rear in the relationship when it comes to like exceptionalness, that's for sure, which is so inspiring and I love it so much. And my goal as a coach is to lift other people up and then as a partner is hopefully to do the same. That's what brings me joy and I look forward to it every day. I like the word or talking about the word exceptionalist or being exceptional because a lot of times whenever people set goals or in terms of self-worth and confidence, people are trying to be, quote, special and exceptional. And our achievements sometimes can get in the way of our self-acceptance and self-worth. So you've worked with tons of high achieving athletes, both who are exceptional as athletes, but also in their lives, you know, doing all these other things. What advice do you have for people who are struggling with looking at achievement as a benchmark or even money as a benchmark of this is how well I'm doing as opposed to the process and the effort? Because we always hear process over outcome, but it's not always easy to be happy with the process whenever you think, well, this outcome, like I should have a better outcome or like I don't feel good about this outcome. Oh, I mean, that's the crux of humanity. You know, whether you're talking about (laughs) athletics or jobs, and I don't really have answers. But I mean, I think the big thing to realize is that, yeah, if we look at each day in a vacuum, it's really easy to take things extremely seriously and take ourselves extremely seriously. But the farther you zoom out, the, the less serious it gets. It's kind of like 
you know, we've all seen those visualizations where it starts with a person and then zooms out and you see the earth and the moon and then you see the galaxy and then you zoom out even further and the galaxy's a speck, you know? And so that's why for those that haven't read the book, we start the book talking about death was probably a jarring thing for our publisher to see. Not because we have any insight into that. Lots of way smarter people have talked about it, but because that is the ultimate grounding in this process-oriented life. Because the idea is, you know, once you zoom out that far, all of this stuff, it's, you know, it's monkeys playing poker, which is awesome. There's a lot of greatness that can happen in that. It's, you still want to celebrate winning hands and all that. But you also want to celebrate losing hands and try to enjoy it all because that whole uncertain, dirty, complicated process is what creates this thing that we call life. That, you know, we don't really have any set there's nothing that defines who lives the best life. This is all us just ascribing order onto chaos. Yeah, if we can embrace the chaos a little bit, it's easier to embrace the process with it. Like these failures I have or whatever you want to call it are not just essential in my success, they're essential in my whole story. And that story plays the biggest role. So like maybe a good example is this past weekend, we coach a few OCR, like obstacle course racing athletes, not too many. But one of them is named Nicole Miracle, who's who coached for like four years. And she started as a runner, had injuries. And then she was also a good climber. And I was like, well, maybe you should try obstacle course racing. And um, she just posted a Facebook post that after the world championships, Spartan world championships this weekend, that I thought was really like apt for this. And basically what her comment was, is that I had to have a lot of failures to get to this point. And you know, that was a picture of her on top of the podium with a $20,000 check. I mean, I think that that's what it's all about. But what Nicole knows is that those failures led to that ultimate success. But then that ultimate success will lead to more failures. And it's just this merry-go-round that we can really enjoy the ride without worrying too much about where we are. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'd be curious about how you do it too, because you know, you've had so much success as an athlete, and then you do all these other things, and you have this amazing podcast and stuff. I mean, a lot of that is, like, it's hard to escape the, the striving element of it. So, like, how do you do it? I think that's a good question. I mean, I definitely can get caught up in I'm not good enough. Or a lot of times what happens is I'll have a quote success, but then I tear it down saying, well, if it was a race, I'm like, well, so-and-so wasn't there. Or the podcast is like, well, it's not number one on iTunes. So I think that it's normal for humans to do that. And it's tough, right? Like finding that balance between feeling, feeling like it's enough and feeling like you're enough, which is something I have to constantly repeat to myself but then if you're in a running race and you're like running as you're like running and then you're like eh, I'm good you're gonna lose the race so there has to be the right amount of striving but I think that striving for the right reasons is one of the most important things and yeah I've spent a lot of time contemplating this and striving for like kind of striving for recognition or that external gratification is fun in the moment but it's kind of empty and when you speak about mortality I've read some like most of the books actually that were in your book. I've read those books and I've spent time contemplating mortality. And at the end of, end of the day, people don't say, I wish I had more shiny things or I wish I made more money. At the end of the day, people say, well, I wish I spent more time working on relationships or helping other people. So for me, I've been very conscious about the projects that I've taken on and the energy that I spend to make sure that the underlying current is to help people. Because at the end of the day, whatever ranking I am on on 
Apple Podcasts. It, it's like, yeah, that's nice. It only lasts a second. And it's probably going to make me feel bad the next day because it's going to go down. But when you get an email from someone saying you changed their life, well, that's going to last a lifetime. So yeah, I think and you probably experience that a lot too with all the athletes you work with because being a coach is not just about giving a running plan or a cycling plan. Like you literally are getting into the heads of people and helping them through really big challenges. Yeah, and that's so beautifully said. Coaching for me is the best thing ever to understand a little bit more about the world because so the way we do it is we try to check in with every athlete every day year round. And so over time, I mean, wow, someone like Nicole, <laughs> it's like 1500 times, you know, plus all the calls and stuff we've had, but like 1500 times where you like really get to know a person and go through everything with them and you start to see patterns and you start to see a little bit of the numbers behind the matrix, you know, like the scroll down of, of things. <laughs> Not that like I have wisdom, but if you see people go through their lives enough and you're paying attention, you have to gain some compassion, some compassion for everything people face, whether it's obvious things like losing a job or a relationship or whatever, or less obvious things like, oh, you know, I struggle with self-acceptance or thinking I'm enough or the imposter syndrome, like you were mentioning, or, you know, not liking my body, you know, anything that, that it goes like, Existence itself is not an easy thing. It's probably a universal exception for a reason to have life. And we're all dealing with that in our own ways. So what I want to do, like what my goal is to try to create an atmosphere of unconditional love for people. So not romantic love, that's tied up in very different things. But I just mean a place where people can do no wrong. And I hope that that's something we can all do for each other. Because once you do that, things become way easier. Like a good example, Megan and I were just talking about this the other day about related to eating disorders. So if someone doesn't, it, because we were just talking about it because of experiences we've had with athletes we coach. And if you've never had an eating disorder, that concept can seem like, I mean, I'm sure we've all heard it. Like people talking to depressed people, well, just be gracious, be happy. Or people talking to eat people with eaters, just eat a cheeseburger or whatever. And yeah, if that was someone that doesn't have it going through it, that would make sense to say to that person. But when someone is actually dealing with what they're going through, it manifests much more like pain, you know, like something internal, something difficult to struggle with. And when you're dealing with those things, when you're dealing with pain, it's not logic that gets you out of it. It's love. It's the only thing that can work. And so because we all have those things, maybe if we're able to give that to others a little bit more, we can help. But then again, you know, that won't, that won't solve everything, but love can solve a lot of things. And that is my psychedelics talk of the day. (laughs) I wish I had like a Bob Marley song to cue in right here. If if I was a radio DJ, I'd have that all ready to go, but no, I agree. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's a reason that all of these different traditions stumble or or talk about the same things just in different language, right? Like everything from the Bible to Bob Marley, you know, just giving language to the metaphor or whatever you want to call it. So there's clearly truth there. That being said, like different people will find different interpretations of it that are meaningful to them. So yeah, I mean, I would just encourage everyone listening. There's no such thing as conditional love. Try to let the people you know in your life and things like that know that they are enough no matter what, because that'll make you feel the same way too. So it's this nice feedback cycle that you can get going. That being said, sometimes the universe also disabuses you of that notion and it's okay to think things suck. Yeah. I think that the, I love you no matter what thing, that's something I struggle with because 
growing up, I felt like my parents are awesome people. They did an amazing job. And I always feel bad saying anything about them like this. But I felt like I wasn't loved unless I was achieving things. And I know that a lot of people can relate with that. It might not even be with their parents. It might be in their friend groups. It might be just from an internal thing. But surrounding yourself with people that are going to love you, even if you're not number one at something. In fact, they're going to love you if you're last at something. I have to, const- it's a, like embarrassing to say, but I constantly have to ask my husband to tell me like, you'll still love me if I suck at everything, right? Like you don't love me because I'm good at things. And I think most people have that feeling deep down that if I achieve more, then people will love me more. Yeah. I mean, in your childhood, did you, were you like striving a lot? Like, was that like your, when you were a little girl, like just going for it and everything? It didn't start until middle school, actually. And it was because something was waved in front of me like, well, hey, like, because I was like an average student in elementary school. And I was just like a tomboy playing basketball at recess, like didn't really care about school. And then in sixth grade, my parents were like, well, if you get straight A's all year, we'll buy you a plane ticket to go visit your cousin. And I'd never been on a plane before. So once I achieved that, I started going crazy, like, well, the next year I got straight A pluses and, you know, and it just like took off and got out of control. Yeah. Um, that's so hard, yeah. right? Because you're, you're pointing out some <laughs> of the inherent logical issues with what we're, you know, with this, what I'm talking about, because you got straight A's, right? And if you didn't become, like, the striving may have set you up for a lot of the amazing things you have accomplished and the happiness that you have in your current life. And without it, who knows where you would have ended up. It might not be as amazing as you are, like to yourself, even. Yeah, I mean, was there a time when you stepped off that path? Or was it a time that it peaked, probably is the better way to ask that question? Like, was there a time that you felt that driving you the most? I would say no. The thing that a lot of people, and I'm trying to get the focus off of me because I I don't want the podcast to be about me. Sorry, sorry. No, no, it's okay. But I think that experiencing great failure was the hardest and best thing that ever happened to me. And whenever I see young kids who are hyper achievers doing well at everything, I worry about them because I know that at some point that big fall is coming and I know what that feels like. So learning how to deal with failure, it's tough in that moment when you've never had any of those things happen. And it's like, who you surround yourself with and and what you're open to learning and hearing can really make or break what you do next. And for me, it was these awesome yoga instructors I had in Boulder. I just went there for like therapy and it taught me more about self-acceptance. But I want to talk about your childhood because I love how your parents like got you out running and they had no idea like the monster that they were creating. (laughs) But I want to talk about running as a journey to self-acceptance because I experienced that before I was a cyclist. I was a nerd. I mean, I still am a nerd. I was completely insecure, like kids at school picked on me. And it wasn't until I found running that I actually found self-acceptance. And I just recorded a podcast that I put out this week about how confidence comes from self-acceptance. So I'd love to talk about your experience with that. Yeah. So I was the fat kid, as a lot of people were. Like there has to be a fat kid in every class. And (laughs) From that, you know, I just wasn't comfortable in my own skin whatsoever, which isn't necessarily, you know, that doesn't have to be related to body weight, you know, perfect no matter what. But for me, running means to like actually understand that, you know, I didn't have to be the kid that didn't like who, what he looked like and things like that. Not, not that it was appearance based. It was more about being confident that, you know, everyone wasn't always judging me. And so, you know, that was a process that took a while. 
And I went through a lot of different phases. I mean, for those that don't know, I proceeded not to just become a runner and then go to where I am now, but I got really strong and became a football player and went to college to play football and then eventually got to running like long distance running as an adult again later. But, um, yeah, I mean, through that process, essentially athletics allowed me to have a place where I wasn't so in my own head. Um, it got me out of that. And, you know, I still deal with that as, as we all do, but getting out of my own head was a productive thing because for all of us, the space between our two ears, it's like three inches of darkness. It's scary and confined. (laughs) And if you spend all your time there, it's probably not going to end well, unless you're like on a Buddhist retreat or something. So for athletics kind of let me open up that world a little bit. And then I would say meeting Megan added a million times to that because that was like unconditional love personified in a person and showed me the power of that and you know what it can do to how you feel about yourself. So, I mean, I feel like I owe her as much, if not more than athletics too. That's really cool. I want to talk about, we kind of brushed on this a little bit, but there's like a dance between caring about your results and then racing or running or riding or whatever you're, it is you're doing for the sake of enjoying doing the thing. And you've, you've worked with so many top achieving athletes and there's stories in your book about people who like once they just started embracing the love of running instead of really focusing on trying to run a certain time or a certain result, their experience really changed. So how do you get someone out of that rut when they're so focused on like, well, I have to make this my 10K time or I have to like achieve this result. How do you get them to really get back to like loving the sport for the love of the sport? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, the slippery slope that we all face with anything that provides these incentive structures. So in running, obviously, you get faster, maybe you can win races, maybe you can get a sponsorship, maybe you can win a world championship, whatever. In jobs, there's also that, you know, like maybe I can get promoted, maybe, or podcast, maybe I can be number one on the podcast. Or, you know, it's this, it's this constant progression of how the brain works and is probably evolutionarily designed. And so to get athletes off that, I mean, it's the first thing we talk about, you know, when talking about death, it's like memento mori, you know, we all die. Like none of this matters. And I try to be really clear, like not only does none of this matter in a broad universal sense, but none of this matters in a logistical sense either. You're going to get to whatever finish line you've laid out for yourself. And even if everything goes perfectly, your life will not change. If you haven't to a certain extent, especially at that level, like some of it's genetics, for example. And I don't think it's a valuable character. It's a virtue to people that had sex 30 years ago. Like that's not something that I value in you. You know, I value you. And so we constantly tell athletes this one, it's a random number generator. We'll see what happens, but you can't really control it Two, Even if everything works out perfectly and that random number generator comes up exactly where you want it to be, you know, often what will be greeting you there is the ultimate letdown. You, we've been, some of our athletes have won world championships or, you know, tons of national championships. And it's like, yeah, if they haven't thought through these processes, they're going to be freaking depressed at that finish line or afterward or whatever. So yeah, I mean, basically we want to dissociate self-acceptance from athletics generally, let alone results specifically. And how you do that in practice, that is highly individual dependent and it's not for everyone. Yeah, I still would like to give people some tips or just some exercises to start practicing self-acceptance because, man, that is 
that's a huge can of worms to open. And like you said, it's really individual, but just getting people thinking about, because most people probably struggle with this because we're humans. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah. I mean, I think it's just a side effect of existence of being alive. And so, yeah, like, I mean, I think that that's the first step actually. Mindfulness is a word that is almost stigmatized because it's so associated with spiritual practice. But essentially all it means is that negative or thoughts that you might not particularly want come to you all the time. They come to the Dalai Lama, they come to Barack Obama or whoever you admire, you know, and the key is just not letting those thoughts define your lived existence. And even if they do for a period of time, accepting that too. So I think the first key thing in self-acceptance is not to, you know, for shorthand in the book, right? You are enough, you are perfect, things like that. But it's the key there is that your perfection lies in your imperfection. When you have those negative things, when you have your stress, your anxiety, your eating disorder thoughts come up or whatever it is, you know, instead of being like, screw you thought, punch in the face, be like, no, 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 I'm going to hug that thought too. You know, not just the thought that I'm this amazing super beast or whatever, but also the thought that I kind of suck and like, be like, okay, this is an okay thing to feel. And I'm okay with that. I'm not going to try to feel that way. I'm going to try to let it go. But you know, that happens. And then the next step is actually doing the positive psychology to try to rewire how you think about things. So it's best to start this as a kid, obviously, because if you don't, as, as you were telling with your story, it takes a lot more work, I would say, to reprogram the brain, kind of like languages or something, just because of how the neuronal connections work. But when you're doing it, the easiest way we found is affirmations, both internal and external, even like people telling you things. So that's where I think I come in as a coach. I can provide some affirmations for people and provide feedback, make sure they know it's honest. Like it's not coming from nowhere. Like athletes have seen me be a, a jerk too, but also to make sure that people know that they're loved, but then internally to also let yourself know you're loved. So, I mean, stuff works, affirmations, very simple, like our favorite one that we mentioned in the book is from an NFL wide receiver named Terrell Owens, who was being interviewed lifting weights in his driveway once. And he's just like, while lifting weights, looking at his bicep, just like, I love me some me. <laughs> and um, yeah, so you can steal Terrell Owens if you want. I love me some me. But you can also just use like, I am enough I, or whatever. And really repeat them. Repeat them ad nauseum to yourself. Repeat them when things are going well, when things are going badly. And over time, little by little, you might give yourself permission to actually believe it. And that's when you start gaining a lot of power. Yeah, mantras and affirmations, they're kind of like made fun of in movies, which I think is too bad because they are really powerful. And I love that I am enough. And I also love I am doing enough because a lot of us are like, well, especially now everything's online. It's like, well, so-and-so is doing this. And like, well, I'm not doing that or I should be doing more. And you just like get stuck in this pursuit of more. Oh, yeah. And that gets back to the imposter syndrome and all that. I mean, it's the it's the most prevalent thing in athletics in particular is thinking that more is better and we are numbers or whatever. But if we're just talking to get out of the psychological realm for a second and go to the purely physiological, the body doesn't care about the numbers that we use to quantify stress. <laughs> the body just knows stress, not miles, not any of your training peaks data, it doesn't know any of that stuff. It, we're, we're just summarizing something else. So within that, you also need to include cortisol released from other activities or other types of stresses. So, you know, as that relates to athletics, 
doing more or going faster or whatever is not necessarily a better thing for raw progress either. I mean, lots of examples, but maybe a good one is Claire Gallagher, an athlete we coach who won this race called the Western States 100 this year. She averaged right around 50 miles per week, which is enough miles. But I mean, most people would assume that to win one of the bigger 100 miles in the world, you have to run 120 miles a week or whatever, like a lot of her competitors were. And that worked for her because her full body stress levels due to all of the amazing environmental advocacy work she was doing, it makes it so that 50 miles a week plays like as, you know, the perfect amount for her body or Scotty Hawker in, in a man. So, you know, going across genders too, who was third at this race called UTMB, which is probably the most difficult mountain race in the world and most competitive for men. And he did that off of 42 miles per week. And so all these ways our brains like to try to insert order, it's really not that simple. So yeah, as an athlete, like I think it's really important to, when you're actually applying these self-acceptance principles, to apply them to how you conceive of your training. And what it means is that the training you can do in the context of your life is what matters, not the training you can do in a vacuum, because we don't live in vacuums. I'm so glad that you said all those things because I know cyclists get on this tread, like this mental treadmill, and I know I've done it too, and I have to catch myself. People think that you need to train these crazy hours to be fast, like exactly what you just said. And I've even had people email me because they're like, well, I follow your Strava, and you actually don't train that much. So how are you that fast? It's like, well, the biggest issue that I've personally had with coaching, like I've tried coaching, and it's failed for me every time because a lot of coaches don't take into perspective what you just said. You have to look at the human as a whole. And I'm somebody that's not very good at just being an athlete. Like I love doing like a lot of things because I need that mental stimulation, but, but it does take away from your ability to train as much. But then you could also argue, well, if I only trained, I might be slower because I'm going to be like going crazy. I've trained 20 hours a week a few times and the times I've done it, I've actually gone bonkers. Like I do not want to ride my bike this much. There's more to life than riding. And and that's just me. Oh, and you know, it's not in your head, right? The neurophysical context of training is chemical, not emotional. And so what works for some people won't work for others at all. And I think it gets back to some of the most fascinating research that's coming out more and more now, which is essentially two sessions by seemingly identical athletes measured down to the cellular level can do totally different things to their bodies based on the neurophysical context. So if you measure hormones and stress levels in two athletes with same lactate thresholds, VO2 maxes, all that, and apply the same stimuli, one athlete might have an ultimate breakthrough, one athlete might stagnate or crash. And it's the same freaking person. So imagine across people what you're getting there. You're getting so much thrown into that mix that goes beyond the raw numbers. And so with that in mind, I think it's liberating in some ways because when you're dealing with training, all that really matters down to its core is consistency and not killing yourself. Beyond that, the body will find its path. Like there are training matters. There are marginal gains. There are, you know, I don't want to say that it doesn't matter at all because it really does. But most things like coaches get too much credit. I get too much credit sometimes all the time because it's all within the athlete. The key is letting that shine. And I think often people don't think of it in the context of letting your talent shine 
because we all have this talent inside of us, no matter who you are, letting that shine. They think of it as terms of like, I'm going to force that thing out. Like I'm just going to make this happen. And that (laughs) almost never works or it only works for a short period of time. Yeah. I would encourage everyone listening. Just let your talent shine. If you feel good, that's good. That's when you adapt. If you feel worn down, you're probably not going to adapt unless you're a freak of nature or like that old Lance Armstrong commercial, you know, people always want to know what I'm on. What am I on? I'm on my bike six hours a day, busting my butt. What are you on? It's like, no, he was able to do that because he was on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's a long way of saying basically like it's the body adapts when you're motivated, happy, fulfilled, feeling good. For some people that might be an hour or two a week. For others, it might be 30 or 40. And both of those athletes will be finding their potential in that process. I love that. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Preach. No, no. I I think the big thing that I just like to emphasize with people, and I, I see this too in a lot of athletes, they're like, oh, I'm not talented. You know, I work harder than others. I've done this more than others. I get lucky someone didn't show up to this race or whatever. And it's like, no, man, that's like one behind the scenes. Everyone feels that way. Like I'm fortunate to get to see some of the internal monologues ish of like the top professionals in, in my little corner of the world. And almost all of them feel that same way. I was going to uh, say, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They, and, but even more than that, people that are just starting out won't even call themselves athletes. They're like, yeah. oh, I'm not, I don't deserve that title. And I noticed that a couple of years ago from one person in particular. And I'm like, wow, you won't let yourself or you know, you never called yourself an athlete before because you didn't think you were deserving of that. And I think it's funny because that person has since become a national level runner, like in terms of competitively, but the key for them was just being like, Oh wait, I, I am these things. You know, I do have these capabilities and that's why like Megan and I both say that the most important thing for an athlete is belief. And that's not, just psychological, that's also physical. I think that a lot of the issues that come up with imposter syndrome and like calling yourself something is comparison. I still have a difficult time calling myself a professional athlete, even though it's how I make my living and you know all those things. But I'm like, well, I'm not like so-and-so. <laughs> so like, what advice do you give to people who are just stuck in this comparison loop and then they feel like imposters because they're not like so-and-so and then so-and-so probably feels like they're not like somebody else and then they have their own set of issues. Well, I was researching you and you're like the ultimate boss, but I totally get why you would feel that way. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's an irrational way to feel. I think it's the ultimately rational way to feel, you know, we're distilling down the essence of human ability into the very limits of what it can do in your sport or in ultra running and trail running and things. And you're selecting for all of these amazing people. Like I always like to tell athletes too, you know, the athlete that is finishing back of the pack or middle of the pack is like 95th percentile in the general population or higher it maybe even 99th percentile. And it's like, well, that person thinks that they're first percentile because of what they see. So it's availability bias where we, we judge ourselves based on availability. And then, you know, you add social media to the mix and it becomes a, that comparison trap just gets going, going, going. And it affects everyone, even that person that wins the gold medal. Like as weird as that sounds, it's true. And so that gets back to like why dissociating from results is so important. And then in terms of how to deal with comparison. I mean, I think it just gets back to like 
being okay with it and that, that feeling and then turning around and instead of saying, okay, I need to get better at not comparing, you know, that'll happen over time. If you're able to do the next step, which is looking at those people, those others and being like, no, 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 I'm rooting for them. Like I want them to do well. I, I mean, if it comes down to it, it's okay if they beat me in a race or they're better than me at this sport that they work harder at or don't and they're just more talented or what get more lucky or whatever. If you're able to root for people, like genuinely just be like, okay, I want that person to be successful. Man, it's awesome because if everyone's on your team, you always win. It's incredible. And that's not just running. You know, it's super against our natures. And that's why it's hard because, you know, we have these monkey brains that want us to you know, smash the neighboring tribe or whatever. But I encourage people to try to apply that to everything, you know, apply that to your job, your, you know, your coworkers, especially apply it within like subgroups, like teams and things like that. But then also apply it to like, you know, even people you might not necessarily like. Once you start doing that and actually spreading some true compassion, like it makes that feeling of chat seeing race results. You know, we all have that, like you see a race result from someone on social media. Part of your brain will always be like, screw you. Like <laughs> that's just human nature, no matter who we are. And once that happens, be like, no, 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 you're freaking awesome. Like that's great. And yeah, become a cheerleader. It's the best thing ever is to like get so excited for people. Yeah. I think it's really difficult initially for hyper competitive people to view competition in that way. My husband's an awesome person and he's really helped me in so many ways in my life. And one is with competition. And he said like, hey, like, I'm happy when my friends beat me. He says, I'm stoked. Like I show up, like he played like college basketball and he's also like a cyclist now and that's how we met. But he's just like, yeah, I love it when people beat me because they're better than me that day. I don't have the right to want to think that I should have beat them if, if I wasn't better that day. And I'm happy for them. So like getting to a place where you can be happy for your competition, even if you don't like them as a person, just being inspired by what they've done and also like viewing competition as a way to make yourself better. Because if everybody around you is kicking butt, like we've seen this in women's running, we've seen this in women's mountain biking, women's sports are absolutely killing it right now because the people you're in competition with one another, but you're still inspiring people to be their best self and you're bringing everybody else up with you. So competition doesn't have to be this thing where you're pushing everything down. It can be this abundance thing where everything's getting better. And this can even be in the workplace or like sponsorship is competitive, all these things. And it's like, well, if I can just be my best self, maybe everybody else will be better too. And I'll make everything up. The pie will get bigger and like the feeling of jealousy and the like those feelings don't feel good. It feels constricting and I don't know, the energy vibration to get all hippie, like it doesn't feel good. But whenever you can like legitimately be happy for somebody, even if they're better than you, and especially if they're better than you, it actually feels really good. And it feels like you can breathe. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's like the big moral of this story is that trying to support putting good things into the universe will always reflect well on you, even if that isn't the initial goal. And we all have that experience. I mean, you say or do something that feels good in the moment, and then it, you feel like crap after, you know, like a great comeback. It's like, that's never going to do any good for you. If it's really funny, you can say it. But 
short of that, <laughs> like, you know, it's not going to do any good for you. But it also for competition, I love the way you describe it. And I want to really emphasize that that doesn't mean that you're not trying to win. That doesn't mean that you don't have a fire. It means that your fire isn't coming from a place of self-loathing and proving something. It's coming from a place of love and like desire to push yourself and desire to use the gifts that you've been given. So maybe a good example, especially because I assume a lot of people in this podcast don't follow ultra running. So the Western States 100 this year that I was mentioning earlier, already spoiled the ending, but story is still pretty cool. In 2017, Claire Gallagher was in third place having the race of her life. This is one of those career making races if you're podium and she is crushing it, moving up through the field. Who knows what happens that day? She gets to mile 92 of a hundred mile hour. General rule is that nothing happens that interesting that late in the race because everyone's moving pretty slowly. And all of a sudden her knee starts to hurt. And all of a sudden I'm getting text messages out on the course. She's out in the dark somewhere. And it's like, Claire is now walking. That sucks, but that's okay. There's a lot of walking in ultra running. And it's like, now she is walking backwards. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. You don't want walking backwards. And then she was crawling and that wasn't good either. So long story short, she had a, uh, a Baker cyst have came like ruptured. I'm not sure exactly what happened in the back of her knee. And she had to drop out at mile 95. Ugh. That was a moment of reckoning for her as a human, because you know, a lot went into that race. She's a brilliant person, brilliant athlete, but what happens when you put everything on the line and have that moment and you're like going for competition, you have that moment where you realize that it was all for nothing, you know, like literally nothing for her. And for her, Claire, I've learned so much from her in this process. She took three weeks and just went to the mountains and came back and was like, you know, I'm here to spread love and to be an environment. Like she's passionate about the environment, to be an environmental advocate. So started advocating for the environment all on her own and eventually ended up getting signed by Patagonia, not as an athlete, but as an environmental advocate. Flash forward to 2019, she is coming through the race and she gets to mile 90 and she's leading this race and she's running the race of her life, one of the best races ever in, in ultra running. And at mile 92, the same place her knee started hurting the year before, she gets caught from behind by a woman named Brittany Peterson, who's a total boss. And so they, they're together at mile 95, the same place that Claire dropped out before. So how do you distill this competitive mindset down into that moment? Like, okay, you could, some could, people could dismiss this and be like, oh, well, you're lovey-dovey and you don't really, like, at that point, you're just like, oh, well, you can win. I want you to be happy. You can win. Instead, what Claire did is Claire's like, no, this is our moment together you know, we're just celebrating life. This is a celebration, not a test. This race isn't a test. This is a celebration. And let's just do what we can. So what Claire did is she put her head down, as she says, she blacked out and <laughs> ran the all-time fastest close in the history of that race, set the all-time record on the final climb, not of people in the race, but of anyone that's ever run that climb, which is crazy because this is a race that, a climb that's in shorter races too. And won by like 11 minutes or, or some, some big amount. Um, wow. But then the coolest part is Brittany finishes and they share the biggest hug. And that's what you want. You want to finish and sh after trying to beat someone because that's fun and that's a celebration and then share the biggest hug. And so, yeah, like that's the idea is, tr you know, it gets back to what we were talking about with spreading the love and like creating this atmosphere of love. It's like, you know, that doesn't mean that you're subverting your own wishes. 
or your own goals or desires, dream big, go for it in everything you do, but go for it with the understanding that no matter where it ends up, you love yourself and you know, you can try as hard as you can to give others that same grace. Yeah. One of the notes I wrote from your book here is running is about celebration rather than evaluation. And you also wrote about the start line and you said the start line shouldn't be a measurement of who you are as a human being. (laughs) And I love both of those because anyone who's lined up for a competition has experienced, oh my God, I'm being evaluated by others. Many people listening to this podcast who've done bike race and you've done some bike racing as well. Like, how many of us have wanted to just stab a hole in our tire because we weren't doing as well as we wanted? Like, (laughs) because you're worried about the evaluation part and it's really hard and it takes a lot of experience and I think maturity to get to a point where you can celebrate just being there and you can celebrate going out and just focusing on being your best, not being the best. Because a lot of times if you're at your best, you could be the best on the day. But really what matters, like some of the results I'm most proud of, I did not win the race, but I was my best self above and beyond what I could have been. And there's races that I've won where I've been like, eh, I'm not that happy about that win. I didn't really, I wasn't my best self that day. I don't feel like I deserved it. So like, it's not really about the end result. It's about like, who did you show up as that day? Yeah, no, I love what you're saying there. I just think it's back, celebrate yourself and all you do. You know, and I can see, especially for people that don't know me, like that this seems a little up in the clouds and BS laden sometimes. And I acknowledge that, like, I'm not trying to dispute that. All I'm saying is life lived in a evaluation state, in a state where you have conditional acceptance of what you're doing and who you are. Like, it's so much, so much harder. And it's so much it's so against the actual physical laws of what we know about the universe to put yourself in that position. And so, yeah, you can make that decision that it's a celebration. That doesn't mean you can't be disappointed. It doesn't mean that you can't really care about things. In fact, I think it means that you feel those things even more deeply because that's part of the celebration too. You know, part of the celebration is letting yourself feel that and like loving that part of yourself, you know? So if it's a personal experience and you're incredible, you know, you're probably born with this competitive fire that still burns a little like, yeah, that's awesome that you feel that way because that's part of who you are and you are perfect and you're awesome. And, you know, when we tie that back to physiology, I think what most coaches realize that coach people long term is that if you can get that positive feedback cycle going, physiology adapts more readily as well. So even if all of this was true BS, I would still say the same things purely trying to get the greatest ends for my athletes, because I've seen it over and over again, the athletes that buy in to true self-belief and self-belief, not meaning they think they're going to win a gold medal or whatever, since all that's subject to chaotic uncontrollability and out of our control. Belief meaning that they can be handed evidence to the contrary. Failure, losing, things we all face, injury. They can be handed evidence to the contrary and still believe anyway and come back and give it their all and chase something that's meaningful in the, in the context of their lives. Those are the athletes that progress and do crazy things and you know truly expose their true talent. And the athletes that don't, that are conditionally accepting of themselves, they're never going to meet that belief hurdle unless things go perfectly. Since life isn't perfect, you know, life, the outcomes are never perfect, even if the athlete is perfect. 
Yeah, that's so true. I'm not of this from this cloth, but it sounds like some people might be a bit cynical about like they're afraid they're going to lose their edge if they aren't like a quote fierce like self-loathing competitor, I guess, or like loathing others type of competitor. People with meditation, a big reason people don't want to do it is they're afraid they're going to lose their edge. Like, oh, I'm going to get too soft. I'm going to get too like, like lovey-dovey. Oh, I love every, like, I can tell you that you won't lose that edge. If you're a competitor, you can feel all those things, but you can still want to kill everybody when you're out there, but you can do it in a graceful way. So you're not going to lose those things. Oh yeah. And I love what you're saying there. Totally agree. Totally. A hundred percent. You can freaking go for it and like want to rip people's heads off, but in like a way that you're loving and like at the end of it, you hug. (laughs) Because I love that. I mean, I, you know, a good, so I was at the Spartan race that I was saying about Nicole this weekend. And it's a big deal. I mean, there's over a hundred thousand dollars of prize money in this. Like off course racing is intense. And I think I, I forget exactly what our last conversation was, but we had a little huddle up and I said something like, you know, you are so ready for this. And she looks at me and just says, I know I'm going to go do this. And then, you know, this is with all this result stuff coming in all the time. And then as she was running away, I just looked at her and she had this look of total, total focus on her face, just to, ready to slay it. And she looks back at me and I just was like, I'm so proud of you. And then she briefly smiled and then stopped smiling. And she didn't smile the rest of the race as far as I saw. (laughs) But the idea being that, you know, part of this joyous experience is getting to play these characters that go out and put, you know, this sports is amazing because it's a metaphor for life. You can go out there and play this character that is the killer on the course, you know, and it doesn't have to come from a place of actually being a killer. And so that's what I want athletes to do. Well, I think that's a really great place to wrap it up. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. The killer line was, uh, I was think it's good. Interesting. Be a, ter- be a Terminator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, don't be John Wayne Gacy. I mean this metaphorically. <laughs> the Unabomber and- probably wouldn't be a good cyclist. <laughs> well, you never know. People have all these issues that do endurance sports. Yeah. <laughs> and he was handsome, I believe. No, that was someone else. Sorry. Got mixed up with my killers. The Unabomber was the guy in the hoodie, like, right? I I don't know. I don't remember. He was was smart. He was the smart one that went to Harvard. So where's the best place place for people to get more of David and Megan and your book? And just what if people want to be coached by you? Like, are you guys taking more athletes? Always if it's a good fit. But the book is The Happy Runner. You can find it on Amazon or whatever bookstores. The website is swaprunning.com, S-W-A-P running.com. And on that website is my email address. And if you ever have questions, even if you don't want coaching, I really want to try to engage and help figure it out, even if I don't have answers necessarily. So never hesitate to email. I know that sounds weird, but like, just consider me a friend that you can email about anything. Instagram, if you like dogs, is Addie does Addie. stuff. Yeah, when he gets to talk about Addy, I have a Baxter has his own Instagram and he follows Addy. I'm actually on Baxter's Instagram more than I am on my own. Like I just like post on my own, but then I'm like scrolling through looking at dog stuff on Baxter Love Streets. Like, oh, this is awesome. That's so good. Yeah, I um, it's funny because Addy is like, I guess my Instagram, but it's and your spirit animal. And so (laughs) Amelia Boone and Nicole at, at Spartan this weekend were like, you know, we've been asked by a lot of people recently why are you coached by a dog? Because like they'll tag Addie does stuff. <laughs> like, your, your coach is a dog. I don't get it. 
So there, and then anywhere else. Like, yeah, so in other words, anyone listening, thank you for listening this long. You have impressive endurance. And if there's any way I can support your journey as a friend or anything else, just let me know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the show and share your expertise and your love and your awesomeness. I appreciate you so much. Like you're just such a such a shining light. I'm so fortunate to be on. Thank you everyone and I really appreciate you all. I hope you guys feel stoked after that episode. I hope you feel like you're enough. I hope you feel fulfilled and ready to take on the day. I really enjoyed this episode with David and I've become a huge fan of him and his work and I hope that you have too. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures and we'll see you right back here on Monday.